Amen. Uh, everyone, good to see you tonight. Well, tonight, if you want to know where we're going to be starting, it's John 5 and verse 16. Um, I'll give you a recap real quick what we went through last week, because this is going to really specifically tie back to what happened last week. Last week, we read the healing at Bethesda, the healing of the lame man at Bethesda. And as we explored the passage, we learned that this man, despite being healed, betrays Jesus. Despite the fact that he is healed by Christ, has a genuine touch from the Lord, he still goes to the Pharisees to sell Jesus out, to say, it is Jesus that healed me, it is this man, and they go to persecute him after that. And it's in light of that story that verse 16 starts like this. For this reason, oh, I'm sorry, one thing I was going to say, I'm not going to read the passage tonight, there's a lot of content, so I'm going to go through it, we'll go through it together as we go forward. But verse 16 is where we'll start in chapter 5 of John. For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. So Jesus here, he says, uh, it says here that Jesus uh, was doing these things on the Sabbath. Remember the uh, mercilessness of the Pharisees and the religious leaders that they were upset that Jesus was healing on the Sabbath because the Sabbath law was more important to them than the wholeness of this man. Their Sabbath law was more important than compassion, the compassion of God to these people. And that is one thing that is is really tragic about that story, is that the religious leaders wanted to persecute Jesus because he had done the works of his father. And so because of this, they're persecuting Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. And it says that Jesus responds to them like this. He says, my father is working until now, and so I am working. Father is working until now, and so I am working. So I am working. So the background of this this phrase here, where we need to think about is, right, the Sabbath ideal. Where does it come from? There's really two background pieces we have to address. The first is Genesis 2, which I think is a story probably most of us, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know the story of creation. God creates in chapter 1, throughout all chapter 1, and then at the end of uh, chapter 1, or beginning of chapter 2, it says this, that the Lord rested from all his work. Right? He rested from all his work. And that became an issue of uh, dispute throughout Jewish history as the rabbis debated. What did it mean that the Lord rested? What did, did, did he stop working all of a sudden? Did God suddenly just not do anything? And the conclusion that the Jews came to was that, of course, God could never rest and stop working because all of creation depended on him, right? So what they understood that to mean was that even though he rested from his creative work, he was no longer creating, he still was engaged in working providentially, right? He was still sustaining the world. He was still upholding it by his word. He was still giving life to all, that he is always involved in the life of his creation. And so that was the way they understood the Lord was still at work, right? He rested, yes, but he was also never finished with his work of sustaining the world and sustaining the earth. And so that's what the Jews understood. And so this, now with that background, I think you can understand why this is so uh, seemingly so blasphemous for Jesus to say to them, right? What Jesus is saying, my father never stops working, right? Just like I told you about the Jews, that debate. He never stops working. Every Sabbath comes and goes, and God is still at work, sustaining the earth. And what does he say? So I too work, even on the Sabbath. Do you see why they understood that Jesus was claiming he was equal with God? No human according to the law, was to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, no, no, my Father is always at work. So am I. 
No Sabbath law can hold back the sun because I am always at work like my father. And so that's why it says in verse 18, it says this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he called God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's uncommon, but it did happen occasionally in the Old Testament in some of the oral tradition that God was called uh, Israel's father. But it was always communal. It was always in the sense of the people of Israel could call God their father. He's our father. Never was it taken in a personal manner that Jesus like uniquely claims. No, he's my father. And so the Jews actually understand Jesus right. I, you know, we're used to in John seeing all these misunderstandings, right? People will say one thing and, and then it's taken a different way than they actually meant. Jesus will, will say something like born from above and they'll understand it differently, born again. Things like that that we've seen throughout this study. But here they don't misunderstand. They understand him perfectly clearly. See, Jesus is making a claim that he is equal with God. And I think we have to address that. Jesus does not shy away from the claim that he is equal with God. They understand him right when they say, oh, he's making a claim that he's equal with God. Yeah, they got it. The question is not revolved around whether he is making a claim that he's equal with God. They both understand that he's making that claim. The question is, is it true? Is it true? Is Jesus equal with God? Is he this son of God, this Messiah? Come. And that's the question that they're asking. And so Jesus says to them, because they say he's making a claim of being equal with God, Jesus answers and says to them in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Son loves, for, excuse me, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Jesus is making a radical claim of connection with the Father, that he is just like him and like a son who apprentices under a father, all that the father does, he shows to Jesus. And Jesus, like a good son, wants to be just like his dad. He does all the things that his father does. And so Jesus makes this claim. It's no surprise, right, that later on when we get through the Gospel of John and in the upper room discourse, remember, he's asked by Philip, Lord, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And what's Jesus' response? Philip, have I not been with you this whole time? If you've seen the Father, you've seen, if you've seen me, excuse me, you've seen the Father, right? If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Jesus is making a claim that to see him is to see God. That is how close, how united how much Jesus is showing us what the Father is like. It says this in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Right? We're at the healing of the lame man. And as we've talked about before in John, these signs that keep happening tend to increase in intensity. Right? They increase in intensity. Right now we're at a healing of a lame man. By the end of this book, when we get to chapter 11, this kind of greatest of the signs before you get to the cross is the raising of the dead, right? The raising of the dead. Here he's healing a lame man. He'll go on to heal. A, he'll feed the 5,000. He'll go on to walk on water. He'll go on to uh, heal a man born blind in John 9. And then he'll raise Lazarus from the dead. 
in John 11, there's an increase in intensity of miracle, right? In, a, in the intensity of sign is the word John uses. So Jesus is saying there's going to be greater works than these. The healing of the lame man, it's not the end of the story. There will be even greater things to see than that. And you will marvel at those things. Jesus says they will marvel. He does not say they will believe. And of course, we know the tragic end is that they don't believe. Despite how miraculous these signs are. Despite how powerful they are. Verse 21, Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The Father has elevated the Son so that he has life in himself and so that he will judge all. Everyone, it says. The Son has the authority to give life and to judge. And those are the two things Jesus is going to explain as he continues through this dialogue about his authority to give life, about his authority to judge mankind. But it says here, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of the Father giving the Son the authority to give life and the authority to judge. It says this, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The purpose of God in, in bestowing Jesus with this authority to judge, this authority to give life, is so that everyone would honor Jesus just like they honor the Father, right? The Father, the God of all the universe, the glory that he is afforded will be afforded to Jesus. And that's the hard part of, of reading through the Gospels. We know that in this life, as, as Jesus walked the earth on this earth, his first coming, he was not given that honor. He was not given the honor that he deserved as the Son of the Father. But that was God's purpose, was that all would honor the Son like they do the Father. And here, the reverse is true, right? If he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. We have to take that to heart. Those who do not honor the Son do not honor the Father. Jesus is very clear about that. The way to the Father is through the Son. There's no other path. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. That's an exclusive claim. That's one of the things I think, you know, that throughout history, Christianity, is certainly in this era that Christianity has received some of the, the most uh, criticism for. Right, the ex exclusivity of it, the fact that there's Jesus can't be the only way, right? Jesus says unequivocally, "I am the only way to the Father." And if you don't honor the Son, you do not honor the Father. Verse twenty-four: Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. We have to stop here, because we're going to turn to a topic that Jesus is about to bring up, um, called eschatology. Eschatology means uh, the last things, the study of the last things. And whenever uh, Christianity, whenever the scriptures, whenever uh, Christians talk about eschatology, they're talking about kind of those final things that are going to happen, Right? The events of the last days, whether that's resurrection, as in our own eschatology, like what's going to happen to us when we die, what's going to happen when the Lord returns, those type of topics. And Jesus is going to make some uh, eschatological statements here. He's going to talk about what uh, life is. And interestingly, he's going to talk about what it is now and what it will be in the future. 
Because when Jesus came, a new age had started, right? The Old Testament was done. This old covenant that Israel lived in with God was finished and completed. And now there was a new covenant coming when Jesus came. And so Jesus wants to talk about life and death and resurrection. And so we have to ask ourselves... What is Jesus saying about what is true now, and what is he saying about what's coming one day? What he says is the one who hears his word, and I am sure when he says the one who hears my word, he's talking about that very moment. The one who is hearing him speak in that day, if they even hear his voice and they believe in the God who sent him, if they believe that Jesus was sent from God, they have eternal life. It's not a future event. It's not a future event that's awaiting them. No, in that moment, they have eternal life and they will not come into judgment, but they passed out of death into life. It's something I think we forget. I'll read the next few verses and you'll see this even more clearly. Jesus repeats the same idea. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, future, and now is, now. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. We'll come back to that last part about authority to execute judgment. But see here that Jesus is saying the minute that someone hears my word and believes, they have passed out of death into life. That hour has now come, he says in this moment in John 5. That's here. And we forget that. See, we always think of the life that is coming and we forget that the life that is coming starts now. We try to look at it uh, very separately. We tend to think of this life and then the next life or the life to come. Jesus says, no. If you hear my word and believe, you have passed out of death into life now. The hour has come that you've passed out of death into life. The eternal life that you've been waiting for has already begun in you. Eternal life is this idea of, of the continuity of life, right? That this life is meaningful. That it has purpose. That it has a connection to the things that God both is doing has done, and will do. Eternal life is not just some future reality. It is something that was initiated in the present. In fact, even in the present of Jesus' day, it was initiated. Jesus says, not only does he have life in himself, in other words, the authority to give that life, right? He claims, if you hear my voice and believe, you've passed out of death into life. And Jesus says, I have that authority to give life to whom I will. Because God gave me that authority. God gave me that authority and therefore I can give life. I have life in myself because the Lord, the Father, gave me life in myself, is what he says. But he says, I also have authority to execute judgment because I am the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, there's a background to that. The Son of Man is, a, is the most frequent title Jesus, Jesus associates himself with. He uses several titles throughout the Gospels, but the one that is most commonly used on Jesus' own lips for his own self-identification is Son of Man. And so you have to ask, what is Son of Man? Well, the background to Son of Man is Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is the background. And Daniel is having a vision. Remember, he's in exile. And he's having a vision. 
And it says, I saw the Ancient of Days. He sees the Lord, the Father, sitting on his throne. And behold, one came on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. What does that mean? One like a human. A son of man is a man. Right? He see, Daniel sees someone. We know it's Jesus now. But when Daniel sees, he sees one who is a human coming before the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven. And this one like a son of man comes to him and it says he's given glory and dominion and a kingdom that will last forever. That's Jesus. And Jesus uses that title. And he's calling back to Daniel 7 when he uses that title, Son of Man. Because he's recognizing that he is that one, that human, who will stand before the Ancient of Days and receive glory and dominion and a kingdom. And it makes sense that the human who receives glory and honor and dominion will execute judgment. It makes sense because one, as a human, he knows how to judge humans. He knows what their experiences are like. He has lived a life that reflects what their lives are like. He's also in place to judge humans because clearly in Daniel's vision, the authority and power and glory afforded him is like God, right? And all these pictures, they don't really make sense until we come to Jesus and you see that God and man is united in Christ. And you see that the one like a son of man who is both human and yet afforded all the divine titles that you think no human would ever have finally makes sense in Christ, the son of man. The son of man of Daniel 7. And so Jesus says, I have authority to execute judgment. Why? Because I am the son of man. Because I am that one from Daniel 7 who will receive glory and honor, who will receive dominion and a kingdom. And therefore, I can judge. I will judge humanity. And Jesus says in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. He doesn't say and now is, okay? We saw the beginning. Now is. What, it, what now is? Well, we've passed out of death into life. We've already received life. And yet, there is still an hour coming, Jesus says, in which all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice, His voice, and will come forth. Those who did good to a resurrection of life. And those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. All will be resurrected. There will come a day when every human who has ever lived will be resurrected to be judged by Christ. That should be a sobering thought. No matter who you are, that should be a sobering thought. One day we will all face the judgment seat. And those of us who have committed good to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. And, and what does that mean, committed good and evil? Well, I think in the Gospel of John, we can go back to John 3. Remember what it said in John 3? It said, Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. If you love darkness rather than light, your deeds are evil. You will come to the resurrection of judgment. And it also says in that same passage, But those whose works are good, those who practice the truth, come to the light which is Jesus, he's talking about himself, come to the light so that their works, will, it will be known that their works were worked by God. It's about believing in the light, right? The judgment of good deeds and evil deeds that Jesus talks about here is the same thing he refers to in, in John 3. Do you love the light or do you love the darkness? Those who love the light, who love Jesus, who believe in him, will find a resurrection of life. Those who love the darkness, whose deeds are evil, will find a resurrection of judgment, of condemnation. 
That is the determining factor. Do you believe in the light, according to John 3? Do you come to the light, which is Jesus Christ? Jesus says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus seems to go back and forth because while at the same time he's saying the Father's not going to judge, I'm going to judge. And yet, Jesus lives only to please his Father. And he says, my judgment will be just because I'm not trying to do my own will, but I'm trying to do the will of God. That's how you know my judgment will be just because I'm not here to please myself, but I'm here to do the will of the one who sent me, his Father. The connection of the Father and the Son is so close, so intimate, so connected, that Jesus only ever does what his Father tells him to do, what he sees his Father doing. He is like his Father, and so he will do what pleases his Father. And so then the next question becomes, okay, Jesus has made all these extravagant claims, these huge claims about who he is, about what he's here to do, about giving life and judging. And after all these extravagant claims, I'm sure all the people are like, well, what evidence do you have? What proof, what testimony can you give to back up these claims? And Jesus says this, if I alone testify about myself, this is verse 31, my testimony is not true. And now Jesus is not saying that if he were just to testify, his testimony is not true. He's saying that the reality is there's a weight to having other people behind you, a weight to having other people support your testimony, what you've said, what you've offered. You say, I, he says, I am the son of man. I am the son of God. And he says, if that's all, it's just claims. It was just me saying that. It, it would be as if it wasn't true, right? But he says, there is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, he doesn't say who that is yet, but we know, of course, he's talking about his father. His father testifies to who he is. And then, almost as an aside, he says this. You sent to John, remember, John 1, the Pharisees went to see John the Baptist. You remember that in John 1? The Pharisees were sent to see John the Baptist, to hear about what he was doing. And so in John 1, when they go to see John, they hear the testimony about Jesus being the Christ, because they went to see John the Baptist. And so Jesus says this in verse 33, You have sent to John, meaning the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. And then Jesus says, But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. See, John's testimony was true, but it's not something that Jesus needs to reassure him of his own identity. He has a greater testimony than the testimony of man. And in fact, it says that Jesus puts no stock in the testimony of man to rely on or to, to assure him of who he is. He has the testimony of another. And yet, John did tell the truth about me, is what Jesus says. You sent and you heard the truth. John told you the truth about who I am. And I don't rely on that testimony, but I'm telling you so that you might remember and be saved. Don't you believe? John told you I was the Christ. Why don't you believe in his word? That he testified the same things that I am telling you now. Even though I don't need man's testimony, he said the same thing. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, 
and you were willing to rejoice for a while in the light. John was a well-respected figure. The people believed he was a prophet. And Jesus' question to them is, if you all believed he was a prophet, if you believed he was truly from God, which so many people did, why don't you believe his testimony about me? Why don't you believe the things he said about who I am? He told you the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is coming. And he proclaimed me. Remember the very next day they were walking and John proclaims, There he is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus says, Yeah, you were willing to rejoice in John for a little while. For a little while you were willing to rejoice in the light that came from John, which was really from God. And Jesus says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they testify about me. That the Father has sent me. Right? The things we have seen so far, the healing of the lame man, the changing of the water into wine, the, the great miracle of um, the healing of the nobleman's son when he's given life uh, at, the, at the point of death. Jesus gives him life at a word, at a great distance away in John 4. He says, these signs, they testify about who I am. In fact, these works confirm that the Father did send me. That's a testimony about who I am. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. He has testified of me. And of course, it's not recorded in the Gospel of John. But if we think to the other synoptic Gospels, we think to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we remember that at his baptism, the Lord spoke. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. A testimony about Jesus. Or the transfiguration, remember that. Jesus uh, is up on the mount and the Lord speaks the same thing. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. The Lord has sp spoken testimony. And I think also that, you know, the testimony in, in our spirits, right? The Holy Spirit. In fact, John, in his letter of 1 John, says in 1 John 5, that the testimony that abides in us, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he calls the Holy Spirit the testimony that abides in us, the testimony of the Father about his Son. The Holy Spirit is the living testimony from the Father about Jesus who resides within us who are Christians now. Right? The Spirit was speaking even then, touching hearts, convicting hearts about who Jesus was. That's a testimony of the Father. Jesus then says this to them. And this is a harsh, a harsh rebuke. Remember, he's speaking to the Jews, the chosen people, those who have built their lives around the word of God, or at least they thought. He says, You have neither heard his voice, meaning God's voice, you have never neither heard God's voice at any time, nor seen his form, you do not have his word abiding in you. Why? Well, the evidence is you do not believe the one whom he sent. You do not believe in the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, it is these very scriptures that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Now that is a sad reality. Because what Jesus says is so clear. They did diligently study the scriptures. Jesus doesn't accuse them of not studying the scriptures. In fact, he says, you diligently study them. And yet you missed what they were all about. The scriptures do not have the power to give life in and of themselves. But they point to the one 
who can give life, which is Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved by reading your Bible enough. You have to have a genuine experience with God. And there is no doubt God uses these scriptures to give us those genuine experiences. But don't think that just because you've read it, you've had that genuine experience. The Jews did not, and I promise you they studied the scriptures more than we ever have. They, they built their lives around it. And yet Jesus says, you can know these scriptures backwards and forwards and diagonally and every which way, and it will not give you life because you did not understand what it was all about. You can quote it to me, you can know it, you can think you're a disciple of Moses, and yet, if you do not understand that these are all about me, You've missed it. You never understood it. In fact, the word that you sought to, to live in your heart, to meditate on, it's not even abiding in you, is what Jesus says. Because if you read these and understood them, you've come to me so that you could find life. And of course, the big tragedy we all know is that on the whole, of course there's major exceptions, but on the whole, the Jews did not seek the life that was found in Christ alone. Jesus says in verse 41, I do not receive glory from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. So now, not only did you miss the main point of these scriptures, in fact, you don't even love God. How do I know? Because I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And yet, if another comes in their own name, you receive them. Jesus comes just trying to please his father, trying to do everything he can to please his father, and they reject him. And yet, if one came for their own glory, to make their own name great, the Jews would receive them with glory. How can you believe, meaning how can you believe in Christ? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. The Jews couldn't accept Jesus because he did not seek his own glory to make his own name great. He was not the Messiah they expected. And Jesus' point is, if I had come to make my own name great, if I had come like a king and rolled into town and kicked the Romans out and did everything you wanted, that would have all been just for me to seek your glory. That would have all been for me to just seek glory from you. And if I had done that, you would have all applauded because I lived my life only seeking your approval and your praise. And you would have accepted me if I'd been that Messiah, the one you wanted, the one you wanted to give glory to. And yet I came humble, gracious, compassionate, gentle. And I sought only to do my Father's will. And because I only sought God's glory, not glory from your lips, you rejected me. They were not prepared for the Messiah that was to come. And Jesus says this, verse 45, we're almost finished. Remember in John 3, I know you know the verse, John 3, 16, right? It says, the Son was sent into the world to save the world, not to condemn it. Not to condemn it, but to save it. And now Jesus says something that I'm sure shook everyone who heard it to the very core. 
don't think that I'm going to accuse you before the Father. Jesus came for salvation. Don't think that I'm going to be the one who stands before the Father and accuses you. The one who accuses you is Moses. In whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The very thing in which they set their hope, Jesus says, will be their downfall. Because Moses had wrote about Christ, wrote about the coming of Christ, the great prophet in Deuteronomy 18, and all the writings besides in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, those first five books of Moses, were all about Jesus, were all about the coming one who would save his people. And Moses wrote about Christ because he knew one day he would come. And Jesus says, you have set your hope on Moses, and yet, because you missed what he was writing about, he will be the one to accuse you. Moses is outraged at your lack of faith. He says, you don't even believe what he wrote, so how could you believe me? And that's the end of chapter 5. Jesus leaves that hanging in the air. We're not seeing, we don't see anywhere else in, in um, John. The next chapter goes into the feeding of 5,000. We don't see the Pharisees' response. We don't see the Jews' response. Jesus leaves that accusation hanging. And I think he leaves it hanging just as much for everyone who would read John, the Gospel of John, as for his audience in that day. Right? John leaves that to say, how do you understand the scriptures that you have poured over? Do you understand the main message? Do you understand what the scriptures are about? Do you understand what Moses wrote? And we all have to ask ourselves at the end of a, a scathing rebuke like that. We all have to ask ourselves, have we understood have we understood? Or have we just thought we diligently studied the scriptures and therefore we have eternal life? Or have we come? Have we come to Jesus? Have we come to him and found life? I think we're left with three kind of lessons for, for us as humans. I told you, excuse me, at the beginning of this series, you know, I really was concerned with, with what it meant to be human, what it meant to experience God, experience God, the same God who walked the earth in, in Jesus, that, that we can still experience him today, that we need to. And this gospel is so concerned with experience, with hearing and seeing the Lord, with testimony, hearing about him. It shows Jesus' humanity so clearly, too. You read a passage like this, and you think about the Son of Man, right? He's a human. It confirms that. You think about Jesus, who probably is so angry at their lack of faith and hardness of heart towards the good that he does to people. And I think those were kind of my two focuses as I started this series. And... Um, I think here, as we finish John 5, there's kind of three lessons I thought we take away as humans. What, what does this mean for us as, as human beings? And I have three. All of them I already mentioned, but I, I want to repeat them, go back through them. The first is this, we have to remember all paths do not lead to God. Jesus is the sole path. There is no path. There is no way outside of Christ. And however we may feel 
personally, uh, maybe, maybe that's hard to wrap our minds around. Maybe it doesn't make us feel comfortable. We just hope you know, everyone can find salvation whatever way they get there. There's no getting around Jesus' exclusive claims. And no matter how you feel about that, the truth is, Jesus is the only way. No one gets to stand aside and say, well, I believe in God, but I don't know how I feel about Jesus. No one can say, yeah, well, I, I know, because I'm a pretty good person, so God's going to take care of me, because I believe in God. Those who don't honor the Son do not honor the Father. We have to be sure to communicate that to people because he's the only way. If people don't know Jesus, they do not know God. There is no salvation outside of him. We need to reiterate that in our own hearts and in our own uh, communication with people about who Jesus is. The second is this. We need to be reminded that life begins now. This eternal life that Jesus promised us began the moment you believed. The Son gives life immediately, immediately to those who believe. They passed out of death into life. We need to live like we're living eternal life now. This is not the life where we kind of, you know, well, I believe in Jesus, so I'm good, I'm saved. And I'll just live however I want. And then when the life to come comes, then, then everything will be sorted out. If, you, if that's your understanding of Christianity, you, you've missed Jesus. You've missed Jesus. Jesus is about life transformation. He's about giving real life now. And the idea that Jesus would uh, save you and not be your Lord, not be the one who teaches you and guides you, not be the one who shows you what real life, good life, holy life looks like, and you could just live your own way, that's, that's living in the darkness. That's loving the darkness. That's not practicing the truth or, or coming to the light, as John 3 says. That life begins now. We have to begin it. We have to begin living that life now. And number three is this. It's a sober truth, a sober reality, but I think it is worth repeating. What you think might save you could prove to be your undoing if it's not Jesus. That's one of the great tragedies of the Jewish people. In fact, it probably is the greatest tragedy of the Jewish people, and they've had a slew of tragedies. They missed their Messiah. They missed their Messiah. And yet they believed they were following the law, the very law that points to Jesus that they believed they were following. It says in this passage, will be their undoing. Moses himself, on whom they set their hope, that they think will be their great mediator, their great intercessor, who will pray for him pray for them just like like he did when he was on earth that Moses that they think will be their 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 salvation he's going to be their accuser because Moses believed maybe we don't have the same thing right maybe we're not Jewish and we believe in Moses and set our hope in him and he'll end up being our accuser. Maybe that's not our story. But there's plenty of other things that we think will save us. That could end up being our undoing. Maybe you think your good works will save you. Maybe you think you're a good enough person to be saved. That won't save you. And in fact, it will prove to be the very thing that condemns you. Because you will never be good enough. There's all kinds of things that humans start to believe in and find hope in and believe will take them out of the tragedy or pain or suffering of this life. And how often do those things end up being the very thing that kills them? 
the very thing that leads to their demise. Let's make sure our hope is set on Jesus, because when you hope in other things, they will inevitably fail. Inevitably they will fail. We need to examine our hearts. What do we think is going to save us? I hope you believe that's Jesus tonight. That he is the only sure foundation. The only thing you can set your hope on that will save you. That is assured to save you. In fact, the moment you believed, he already moved you from death to life. He already moved you from darkness to light. I hope you believe that tonight. Let me pray for you. Let me bless you tonight as we, as we close. Lord, I pray. I pray great blessing on everyone who's here, both online and in person, Lord. I just pray that your spirit would make you known to them again, afresh tonight. Lord, I pray that you would show up and that they would experience you. Let us not be people who search the scriptures emptily, who search it without purpose, without knowing the truth that lies behind it, which is that you sent Jesus to redeem us so that you could dwell with us, that we would be your people, you would be our God, and you would dwell among us. I pray, I pray, Lord. You would change our hearts to be more like Christ, that we would hear rebukes from Jesus where we need to be rebuked, encouragement where we need to be encouraged. And we trust in him that he has passed us from life to death, that you gave him that authority and that he has passed us from life to death. And we await the judgment with hope because we know we will not be failed, we will not be condemned because we have already passed out of death into life because of what you do, because your judgment is just and you will bring us to a resurrection of life. And so I pray great blessing over everyone here and we love you and praise your name. Amen. Amen. Love you all. Thanks for being here.